Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Dipti, what's the brand you remember as a young girl growing up in India that had was the first brand that made an impact on you? Wow, there's you know there's so many. I'll I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote uh, just to, to give you a sense of uh, advertising in India in in the 80s and 90s. It was it was the golden age of jingles, to the extent that my dad had recorded a video cassette. You know, remember those back in the day, of 45 minutes of ads that he would just play for my brother and I. The one that is a marketer now I, I even appreciate even more is Nestle had launched um, an instant uh, noodles brand called Maggie, which as a kid, I remember, was like the thing. You know, when we'd go into the grocery store, I'd be asking my mom to buy Maggie. And, and what they'd done beautifully was to hook both the kids and the parents. So there was a reason to believe in a value prop for the kids about how cool and fun and delicious it was. And for the parents, it was all about two minutes. The entire tagline was built around all it takes is two minutes to cook. So can you remember the Maggie jingle and sing it for us? I'm not going to sing it for you, for sure. Trust me. <laughs> if you want people to come back and listen to your podcast, you do not want me to sing. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Dipti Kashru, the chief marketing officer of U.S. Wealth Management at JPMorgan Chase & Company. J.P. Morgan Chase is a very large and very storied financial institution. Its roots date back to 1799, and the founders of its earliest predecessor company include Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Today, its market cap is roughly $500 billion, with about 250,000 employees. My CMO guest, Dipti, has been steeped in the financial services marketing since 2008, when she joined Oppenheimer Funds before moving to J.P. Morgan Chase in 2011. Dipti was born and raised in India, living on various military bases as her father was a fighter pilot in the India Air Force. She graduated from the Lady Sri Ram College for Women in New Delhi and later moved to the New York City area. Dipti is married with two children and she loves advertising jingles. This is my conversation with Dipti. Welcome, Dipti, to the CMO Podcast. You know, you are the second J.P. Morgan Chase leader on our podcast, and I feel very kind of poignant about that because Kristen Lemkow, who was corporate CMO at the time, was my very first guest for my very first podcast almost two years to the day, and she's now your boss. She sure is. Uh, no, firstly, thank you so much for having me. It is it is really a, a, a privilege and an honor uh, especially given sort of the, the legacy you have in the podcast has with Kristen, who is not just a boss, but someone I've deeply admired over the years as a marketer and a leader. So what's it like working for a former CMO? You know, there's, uh, I tell my team this very often, it's, there's good and bad, right? Uh, what's great about it is she gets it. She gets what marketing can do for her. We're often her first line of defense, which I feel really, really good about. You know, the hard part is she she does it in and out uh, and uh, she wants it done faster. So we've got a high bar set for us, which which is great. It pushes us every single day and makes us better. So what kinds of topics do you two talk about vis-a-vis marketing? What brings you together? What kind of topics? You know, we spend a lot of time talking about how to make the brand relevant uh, for the segments we're trying to serve. As you can imagine, I mean, JP Morgan's an iconic brand. Uh, recognition is not a problem. Uh, the mission we're on to grow the wealth business, the opportunity for us is to really reframe what the brand means to segments beyond just the wealthy, right? Everyday investors, people who are starting their journey, who are looking for advice, they don't think of us. We're not top of mind. 
So we spent a lot of time talking about how do you sort of stay true to our DNA and stay authentic as who J.P. Morgan is, but start to feel more relevant and what that means in our messaging. Uh, we also spent a lot of time on just, she, she's a prolific writer, as you might know. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time just looking at content sometimes. Mm. So what was her advice to you when you came over and took this role, which is not that long ago? It wasn't. I think um, her advice, and this has been consistent advice, I've had the benefit of working with her and for her over the last six years now, which was not to get limited by sort of these artificial lines of what marketing is and what marketing isn't. I think, you know, just watching her career and the guidance that she's always given her team is think end to end. Uh, keep the, advice, the, the client, keep the client at the center uh, and, and really sort of drive action beyond just what you think marketing can do, whether it's product design, whether it's client experience design, uh, and it's about driving growth. Yeah. Does she like your new campaign? She does. She does. I would hope she That's does. It's a good thing. It is right? a good thing. It's a good thing. And listen, it, was, it wasn't an easy campaign for us to build uh, for all the reasons I was just talking about, right? Uh, wealth management is a highly cluttered space. The the work in the market, if I say honestly, is not particularly inspiring. It's hard, and, you, and now I know why, because it's hard to make inspiring messaging come to life in a very natural way for something that is a little abstract in, in, in how you sell it. So uh, it was a journey, but we feel pretty good about where we've landed, and we're starting to see some 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 good data points coming through that's reassuring. We're probably going to talk about that campaign a bit later in the podcast, but I want to now sort of jump backwards and talk about your career and how you got to where you are today. And we'll talk about your current job in a bit as well. You grew up in a military family, I understand. I did. And you jumped around a lot to various military bases. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about that early experience, how that shaped you as a kid how it shaped you as the leader you are today. So reflect on that a bit for us, if you could, Dipti. It's very interesting. Uh, no, I mean, listen, I'm incredibly proud of uh, growing up in the Air Force. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And even in India, I grew up in India. Uh, you know, li living in the military or growing up in the military was, was a little bit of a unique experience. It meant we were mostly in very small bases. We moved around every couple of years, but but it's it's truly what's shaped me. Uh, and a couple of things I'll call out. One, um, there's a lot of change. You just get accustomed to change because you move so much. It's, it just becomes part of who you are. And it, I think has helped set me up well in life as you sort of think about corporate America and what you experience there. Second, uh, it's incredibly tribal, right? It's all about sort of a tribe coming together uh, in, in uh, driving towards a higher purpose. Uh, in, in this case, protecting your country. And that higher purpose is makes you believe in something larger than yourself. And for me, purpose, and I know for you, purpose is really critical in what we do every single day. And, and that was sort of the early learning I had. The third, I think, is in, in just how natural diversity and inclusion is when you're growing up in the military. You know, India is a very diverse country. Uh, a lot of different people from different backgrounds, religions, upbringing styles all come together in, in you know, in ode to that shared purpose. And uh, so, so just like working through diverse teams just comes naturally because that's that's what I learned that's what I knew did your your parents did your dad talk about the purpose much growing up in terms of his job and the air force and the military it's it's a good question i don't think i've sort of you know consciously reflected on it i i don't remember him talking about it it was assumed it was sort of in the dna just what you yeah. did uh, you know, as, as kids, I think we didn't quite realize how unique that experience was. You know, coincidentally, my husband grew up in the military as well. It's got a common language that we share. Uh, it's just, it was fun. We just, you know, it was a little Top Gun, a little, uh, a little bit of an adventure. Uh, but uh, it's it certainly, I think now looking back was very unique and, and, and has given us a lot of tools in how we just sort of walk through life. So you had this political science, international relations interest, interest to be a lawyer, but you somehow wound up at a startup 
<laughs> working in marketing services. And I think maybe not, not your parents' ideal job that you would walk into, right? Your, your mom, I think, wanted you to get an MBA, but you stayed with this startup and you worked with the most amazing brands in the world. You know, the list of brands, ESPN, J&J, Pepsi, yep. Microsoft, Unilever. Yep. So why was this, and you stayed there a little while. Okay. So why was this such a developmental experience for you? Why was it a better alternative than an MBA? What, what lives forward to today from that experience? I think almost everything lives forward to today, uh, both good and bad, right? You learned how to be a better marketer and what not to do. But if I walk you through that story, I mean, it was happenstance. Like I said, I was, I was very driven around sort of political science and law. And I started working as a side hustle in, in college with a small promotional marketing agency. Uh, and it was two very driven founders. Uh, at a time when the Indian economy was opening up and they had identified a gap in the market where there was traditional advertising agencies, but there weren't as many sort of below the line back in the day agencies that were doing more in market client engagement, um, uh, marketing services and events uh, activities. And uh, I started working with them and and sort of fell in love with the idea of bringing sort of my deep interest in human psychology uh, my my love for just problem solving and the ability to create something where you could see immediate benefit and impact. Uh, so I worked with them, uh, let's say for about a year on some of these brands and uh, had decided by by the time I was ready to graduate that I wanted to be a marketer. I, I wanted to go build brands. I wanted to work at PNG. I wanted to you know work at Unilever. I was, I had the, I was bitten by the bug. Uh, but um, my parents, you know, I came from a from from a family that was very academically oriented, and and you know, this was twenty plus years ago. the The way to do it was you went got yourself a master's degree, and in this case, an MBA. And so I started to apply to business schools, and I got into one of them, and I was all set. And the founders called me just as I was leaving uh, the city I was in, which was New Delhi, and they said, "You know what? We want you to come join us." And I was like, "No, no, no! You know, maybe in a couple of years, let me go back to school." And they convinced me. They said, "We trust us. We will. You will learn more here than any business school can teach you. And if you really want to, a few years later, have at it. But give us a couple of years. Come join us." Which I did. Uh, yeah, my my dad, you know, took a little while to get used to the idea uh, because it was it was pretty uncommon those days uh, to do that. Uh, but it was it was literally it was the best experience I've had. Uh, incredible brands early in their journey in the Indian market. So you were sort of taking what was already iconic and global and translating the relevancy in the Indian market across and across categories. And, and you know, how often does a 20 year old get to do that? It, it was it was great. So which of those brand experiences or those brands you worked with, which one was the most developmental for you? Which one was the most interesting? You know, they they all were. It's hard to pick one. I'll tell you, we did a lot of work with Pepsi Foods uh, and Frito-Lay um, and uh, introduced a lot of new products that they were designing for the Indian market based on the Indian palate. So while we were launching sort of traditional Frito-Lay chips and we did that, uh, I sort of saw the journey from start to finish and how you think about sort of the market that you're in, how you're designing products specifically for the palate, how you're working with traditional advertising firms to bring the messaging to life. And then the work we would do sitting side by side was to translate that into getting clients to engage with the brand, right? We were in market sampling those products in mass. Uh, and the magic of that and when, you know, it's the demonstration, I think something I bring back to sort of the job I do even today is to try and take the abstract to the real. We're in the wealth business. We're selling expertise and advice. How do you demonstrate the value of it? What is the equivalent of sampling that in the hearts and minds of a customer? And that was something that sort of really, I think, connected uh, the the traditional marketing approach to a more hands-on, interactive, engaging marketing approach that, that sort of threads the needle across the journey. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, 
visit cmo.deloitte.com. What's the toughest career decision you've had to make leading up to today? I think it was leaving India. It was leaving India at a time where I was doing well, I was thriving, I was learning uh, and growing. There was there was no shortage of challenge or adventure. Um, and it was about now moving to a brand new country and starting from scratch. And I did, right? I had sort of grown in my career in India. I was running an office for them. Um, I was leading a couple of our biggest accounts. Uh, and then to sort of walk away from it all and start from complete scratch, I think, was probably the hardest. But but I'm glad I made the decision. Yeah. Well, you got your master's, so your parents must be happy. I did check Columbia. that box. I did check right. that box. And then quite a career in financial services. And I know you were at Oppenheimer mm -hmm. and then at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase in various roles. Mm -hmm. You worked quite a few years on 529 plans, I helping did. people save for college. Was that rewarding? Was that challenging? Tell us about that. It was incredibly rewarding. You know, I, I always joke, uh, no marketer wakes up and says, I'm going to work in financial services, especially in asset management, right? Like I said, for me, it was about building brands and working on iconic brands and, and, and certainly more customer-centric brands. Uh, but because I moved countries and was restarting my career, I ended up early on at Oppenheimer Funds because it was the best opportunity I had, and I was determined to make the most of it. And making the most of it actually brought me closer to the college savings business. It was the only business at Oppenheimer, which is, you know, which is a B2B asset management shop, uh, was college savings, where you weren't selling alpha and beta and portfolio construction. You were selling hearts and dreams, um, and so uh, it was it, it sort of it was relevant to me. I spoke the language of understanding what the end outcome was for the consumer versus the sales process. Uh, and they they needed uh, more of a B2C marketer. And so sort of it was a, it was a little bit of a, of a meeting of opportunities there, both for the team that was growing and was starting to build that business. It was also very it was sort of a small startup team within Oppenheimer. Um, and, and my skill set proved to be sort of very relevant for them. And, and, and I ended up sort of staying within that team and helping them build that business where we were actively, uh, you know, engaging not just with consumers, but working very closely with, uh, with the states and their controller offices or their treasury departments to help build more visibility around sort of what saving for college meant. Was there an interesting insight about human beings you developed in that experience? I mean, again, you're thinking about the future, thinking about a child or a nephew or a grandchild, putting money away in hopes that they someday want to use that for school. I mean, what, what did you learn about human behavior in that, I think, five or six years you worked on college savings? I think it was a couple of things. One, and this is sort of behavioral science, uh, you know, classic principles, which is we're always battling sort of the immediacy of reward versus a long-term investment. Uh, that was one. Second big one was was actually how much we believe our kids are just going to get scholarships and go, you know, and be done. And so there was a hesitance to save for college because most parents were convinced that their kids were brilliant mm. or were super athletes, and they were, and and, and the, the data was quite to the contrary, right? Less than I think zero point two percent of kids actually get a full ride to college. Uh, on a sports scholarship, even if you're, you know, if you're getting financial aid, that's great. You still have to pay it back, and these right. are significant sums of money. So there was there was certainly a gap in just understanding the realities of uh, what college might need to look like from a funding perspective to how families were behaving. Like retirement, I think as an industry, we've done a really good job of helping people understand that retirement is a long term goal. You've got to save for. There was some work, and this was, again, this was 10 plus years ago. There was still work needed to be done on the college savings side. Yeah. Now, you're about six months into this new role of CMO at U.S. Wealth Management at J.P. Morgan Chase. It's a new unit in the company, and you're in a new role in a new unit. Mm -hmm. so, so start by what, what, what compelled the company to start the new unit? Let's begin with that. So it's actually been a, a little over a year. Since we started, uh, Kristen was announced as the CEO of the business in December of 2019 and started to pull her team together. I joined her team in the new year, early in January. Uh, and, and in March, 
probably a week after we had a big uh, strategic planning meeting as a team in person, right? The pandemic hit and we were all at home. So it's it's been um, it's been quite the journey, uh, but a, but but a really uh, rewarding one, I think. A uh, couple couple of things as I took on the role. Step one was to build a team and establish sort of priorities for the immediate term, the medium term, and the long term based on the ambition and the strategy we had as a as a as a business team. Um, and then to start to sort of deploy that really quickly, there were some things we had to do tactically. It was, you know, the, the analogy I often use is it's it's building the plane. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, refurbishing the plane as we fly it. Right. So, so the analogy really is about refurbishing and upgrading the engine of the plane as you continue to fly it. So we need to keep things moving. We'd inherited a few businesses that were already in market and were functioning, but there was more to be done on those fronts. Uh, the brand was a big part of the strategy and focus. Uh, there was work to be done on simplifying it, clarifying it before we started to amplify it. So we had to take a little bit of a step back and think about who we were, how we wanted to show up in the market, who we wanted to serve. So the first six months were spent doing that from a brand perspective. Simultaneously, we needed to ramp up some of our traditional sort of performance marketing engines to bring through more data, more analytics, more technology to get us to accelerate the book of work we were doing. So it was a go slow to go fast in one direction and the other direction we were sort of really accelerating at the same time as we were reimagining what the business needed to do during the pandemic. So uh, fun times. Yeah, I mean, what you just described there was really you were building the brand framework. Mm -hmm. Who are you trying to reach? What are you offering? How are you distinctive? How will you go to market? Could you speak a little bit about how you tackled that in a pretty, as you said earlier, a pretty cluttered market yep. and what the role was of your purpose and your team and your customer in that process of building the brand framework? Sure. So the the good news was the purpose was very well established and very clear. And this is, again, a benefit of having Kristen as a CEO uh, who sort of understood that purpose and had helped craft it, right, which for us is about helping our clients live better lives. It's how does the brand, serve, how does the business sort of serve better outcomes for our clients, help our clients make the most of their money so they can make the most of their life. So that was clear. I think the work we had to do was we had a set of products and service offerings, and we had to really think about the role each of them played and for whom. So we took a step back. There was, there was a fair amount of customer segmentation work we did to understand what was relevant, how these services were designed, but they were delivering on the promise that they had been set out to do, and, and some were, and some needed a little bit of work. Simultaneously, like I was saying, uh, on the clarification side, we'd gone to market as multiple brands. There was Chase, a Chase brand that sort of spoke to clients in the investment space. We'd created a digital investing brand called You Invest. JP Morgan was always traditionally seen as the brokerage brand that was serving more affluent clients. And we had to make some tough decisions on simplifying that brand architecture, understanding where we had equity, where we didn't have equity, what sort of frame of reference we needed to bring through. Uh, but again, I think the, the the leadership team really coalesced around the purpose and the strategic roadmap we'd laid out, and it made making some of those decisions much easier for us in the journey. Dipti, where did you start in this? You came into this new unit mm -hmm. and you really had a, you have a chance, I guess, to build your marketing team, you know, not from scratch, but, you know, you had a chance to rethink it mm -hmm. and also think about what you wanted to be great at. What yep. kind of capabilities did you want to build? So could you speak a bit? Not everyone gets that chance to come into a new unit, you know, with a new leader and a new leadership team. Where did you start in what kind of team did you want to build? What sort of capabilities did you think were necessary for you to win? So speak a bit about that for us. Sure. So the starting point really was to understand um, two or three very specific things. One was gaps in skill set, just from a team perspective, right? I had inherited a few people I knew, I'd inherited a few people I didn't know. And so we had to think really quickly about sort of core gaps I had. We brought in a new 
uh, leader on the brand and strategy side from the industry who understood the category well, who had significant experience there to sort of so we could hit the ground running. Uh, we brought in a performance marketing team and a couple of leaders to own that because if you think about the wealth business, that's been much more traditionally a referral business where advisors go sort of within the community, build referrals and drive their business forward. Christian and I were both very clear that as a marketing organization, we were about driving growth. And so building that performance marketing engine quickly, understanding what our data and analytical infrastructure looked like, where the gaps were, how we filled those, where the teams were. We actually brought in a bunch of people from our card business who had built best-in-class performance marketing engines at scale, right? We were engaging with tens of millions of customers on a day-to-day basis driving business outcomes for us, Uh, but then translating it to the category. What did that mean? You know, we were good at driving um, response-driven outcomes on the consumer banking side, where you're selling checking accounts. We were great at doing that for credit cards. But what did that mean when the next step is to talk to an advisor about your finances? It's a higher consideration product. The purchase cycle is much longer. How did that fit into the architecture? So some, some sort of initial work there. And like I said, on the brand side, we had some decisions to make, which was, are we going to lean towards the Chase brand for this business, um, which was clearly iconic and recognized? Or were we going to lean on the JP Morgan side and understanding what each of these brands meant to our customers, how they related to it, what it represented was important for us to then and make our choices. And as, as, as you know now, uh, we're called J.P. Morgan Wealth Management. It was a very intentional decision because we realized that the credibility sort of sat on the J.P. Morgan side for the services we were offering. You are in the middle, though, of an interesting corporate synergy you know, mission mm-hmm. because Chase obviously has deposit customers who are loyal. They do a great job with that. Uh, I think it tends to be younger. Mm-hmm. So I guess you're you're looking at how you take customers who are coming in from one brand into another brand. And we wrestled with that at P&G all the time. I bet. You know, how could we take Pampers customers who were new households, new mothers, new fathers, and bring them into Olay and Bounty mm-hmm. and Charmin mm-hmm. and Tide? You know, it seems like a layup, but it's not. So... So any lessons in kind of multi-brand synergy, leveraging the, the assets and the scale of your company? You know, I, I know you're trying to do that, but any lessons for others who also have that opportunity? You know, I'd love, love your thoughts on it because um, clearly you've done that really, really well for a long time. I think for, for me in how we've approached it, there's sort of two big drivers. One was you have to deliver value across, right? that journey if because because clients have the right to choose what's best for them and if you're not delivering value in it being uh, a connected ecosystem of service offerings across two brands i think they see through it very quickly the second was and it's connected to value which was to ensure there was shared dna while both brands sort of had strong equity and stood for something connected yet different we had to clarify who did what and how. For example, for us, while the expertise of sort of being in the markets and really understanding how to help families save for their long-term investing goals is a JP Morgan narrative, the product is actually available in the Chase store, whether it's your app, whether it's Chase website. And so being able to sort of clarify what was the ingredient brand in some cases or what was the front door in the other cases, which is harder, and, and not to say that we've done it. I think um, we're starting to see progress where you know we do a lot of focus groups. We, we spend a lot of time talking to customers. And, and in most cases, our clients are able to tell us why, what they buy from where, right? What does Chase represent versus what JP Morgan represents and the fact that it's one organization. But that doesn't mean they're always going to choose both sides of the coin unless we show the value. Yeah, those are pretty good lessons, Dipti. I, I, I think I would a- add to that two others. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at one is first-party data. 
and it sounds like a simple thing, but are we sharing our first-party data across brands to the benefit of customers and the company? And we weren't in, back in the day, and, and P&G is way better at that now. But even just getting inside the culture to say, we're all in this together, we're all in this to help each other out, you know, brand by brand. We're all about making people's lives better, impacting them in a positive way. So let's all have that as our ambition and our purpose and yep. figure out how we can work together. So the inside cultural thing's a big one. And the second one, and, and you know, you, you address this, we found in many markets, if people knew that P&G brought them a brand, that the corporate brand had a big halo. That was true in many Asian markets, true in many Eastern European markets when we first entered you know, back in the 90s. So if people, when, we, when we introduced a new brand, if they knew it was from P&G, the trial, levels was, the trial levels were higher. So I think it's about leveraging that great you know, brand name, which you have in J.P. Morgan and Chase, frankly, and then figuring out how inside you, you share more in service of the customer and in service of the company's growth goals. Now, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think we, we, there's more work for us to do in making it relevant to, to a younger audience, right? I think, I think we've nailed that story with a more mature audience who are investing for a long period of time, who have a little bit more wealth and, and hence complexity in their finances. And so they've sort of, uh, they're more active, actively, um, I think, oriented to what JP Morgan brings to the table. What we're seeing differently is with younger customers who think of us as somewhat unreachable. And that was the hard decision we had because Chase is a brand for everybody. JP Morgan wasn't seen as a brand for everybody, but had incredible DNA uh, to leverage in that story. And this is, this is, again, sort of taking it back to the power of storytelling. I think P&G has done an incredible job of, you know, owning that halo and defining it for what that halo means. And there's more work for us to do on that front. Any insights for uh, unlocking the uh, the young people and getting their interest and their attention? As a parent of millennials and and uh, and an uncle of many millennials, it's not obvious to me how you unlock their interest in the category where you have so much to offer. So, what are you learning about that generation and the one behind them about relevance, meaning? And, and getting there, and, because once they're engaged, they act. They do. We see that on many issues. They do. I think um, there's, there's a couple of things, right? You think there's an acknowledgement of who they are, not who they want, we want them to be. Uh, and in the acknowledgement of who they are, what they care about matters, how they want to engage matters. But there's also universal truths that we're seeing that that were somewhat surprising, I think, to us, where the role of trust was was really, really important to them when it came to their money. And while they are attracted to the fintechs where ease and convenience is sort of core to the offering and the value proposition of that offering, they're also starting to realize that they need credibility and trust and security. Um, and so we're seeing a little bit of a shift there where we were, to, you know, we went through an exercise of trying to be a much younger brand as we were sort of in the lab and, and, and cooking up our, our, our brand strategy. Um, and, and we decided to be a little bit more authentic to just who we are. Clearly, we needed to modernize the brand and we needed, you know, language makes a, a huge difference. And we're, we're very, very conscious of the language we're using in the market so we don't feel exclusionary in any way. But especially when it comes to younger audiences, I think reinforcing the why around the credibility and trust was important to us and the heritage without being apologetic about it, uh, being purpose-led, being very vocal about how we thought about social impact as a brand is also something that's driving choice. As you see younger investors, and I'm sure you're seeing this, they're, they're investing more in ESG. Right? They care very clearly about who they're investing with or what brands they're picking based on what those brands stand for. That's making a difference. I think that the two big ones I would say is the ability to really represent why they should trust you. And for us, that was about bringing our heritage to life and our experience and our expertise to life. You know, I, I see your company in the news so much about standing for uh, positive change. Mm -hmm. Whether it's uh, DE&I, whether it's climate, 
And I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you decide where you have a voice. I'm getting that question, by the way, so much from so many of our colleagues. And the good news is I think companies are really standing up and showing what they value with their employees, with their customers, based on their heritage, the values of the company. But there's a lot of opportunities out there. There's a lot of challenges in the world we can help solve. How do you decide where to take a stand, where to have a voice? Listen, I, you know, I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of the entire firm. But I think what I have seen, firstly, I'm incredibly proud of, of just J.P. Morgan and, and uh, Jamie himself and his uh, operating committee and how vocal they are in, in sharing how the company and the company values are aligned with social change and social impact. That's one. I think the way we've, I've seen it being approached internally is to tie it back to the business, to make it real and actionable, which is what can we as a business and the businesses that we're in do to impact social change in a very measurable, actionable way. It's more than just lip service. If we're in the lending business, how is our lending business going into communities and making sure that we're helping diverse entrepreneurs? In, in, in getting access to, uh, to, to loans. Uh, the same for us on the, in the wealth space. For us, it's not just about serving a diverse population. It's about representation in our own field, right? We're hiring more diverse advisors. Uh, it, as you know, the wealth management industry has, has lacked diversity for a really, really long time, and we're being incredibly aggressive about building a pipeline of diverse advisors and, and bringing them in and helping them be successful in the business that we're in versus just the representation that, that all of us, you know, are portraying in our, in our marketing. It's got to be more than that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this campaign you've just launched. And I've, I've, seen, I've seen it, and I think there's some really, really good insights in there about reframing your category. You're only six months into the job. You've launched a big new campaign. And I know that's never easy, even on an established brand. So could you speak a little bit about the journey to this campaign? You know, what, what was the catalyst? What was the goal? What was the ambition? Who did you work with? What were some of the insights that you found most mind-opening? I'll start from the very beginning. Um, and I usually try and do this, which is to really think about what problem are we trying to solve? Right. As a new business and a new, incredibly ambition, ambitious business, um, we were we were careful to not make this a kitchen sink effort. There was a couple of things that we were very focused on. One, our biggest challenge today is that we have very low unaided awareness in the space, you know, for, which is which is somewhat um, paradoxical to the fact that we're J.P. Morgan and Chase. You'd be like, everybody knows you. What are you talking about? Yes. Everybody does know us, but they don't know us as a destination for long-term investing advice and solutions. They know us as a consumer bank. They know us as a card provider. They know us as a private bank. They know us as an investment bank. They don't think of us. And so as we started to look at the data over the last couple of years, we knew that we were incredibly weak. We weren't top of mind for most customers. And so we needed to tackle unaided awareness very specifically and just showing up as part of the category and as a credible player in the category is what we needed to achieve. The second, like I mentioned, we serve a broad set of audiences across segments. We serve, you know, we serve the affluent, but we're also serving um, younger investors who are starting their investing journey. We're serving the Gen Xers who are sandwiched between helping their parents sort of retire comfortably and saving for their kids' college education. And so as we went through the narratives and the stories that were relevant in demonstrating sort of the role we played, we had to make some conscious, conscious choices on who are we designing this campaign around. And while what you see is diversity, not just in, in ethnicity, but diversity in age representation as well in the campaign, we knew the work we needed to do was with millennials to start to feel more accessible and relevant. So, so you know, there was a, there was a breadth of, uh, uh, I think, goals that we had, but we tried to be very intentional in how we picked our targeting strategy and what media decisions we made. And we spent a lot of time thinking about how we weren't just 
sort of amplifying the narrative of the brand at an emotional level, but we were being very clear in demonstrating how our products worked, which was also something we sort of lack in the industry a little bit, I think. Dipti, where are you spending your time these days personally with all the opportunity you have? Is it with the team? Is it with customer insights? Is it with strategy? You know, if I had to look at your diary over a month, what, 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 where would the buckets of time be? Uh, a lot of it is with the team. We're still early in our journey. There's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of upside in terms of sort of elevating, you know, elevating what we're doing today. But really, as I think about it, establishing the playbook for, for what this organization, uh, my marketing organization needs to do. So a lot of time with the team, uh, we're, we're obsessing about how our clients are reacting to what we're putting out in market, where I think almost everything we are doing today and will likely do for the next year or two is going to be supported by just an aggressive test and learn agenda. Because there's, there's work to be done to unpack what's working, what's not. Uh, so that's one book of work. I'm also spending a lot of time actually diving much deeper than I probably thought I would in our data analytics and technology environments to understand where the opportunities are for faster, better insights, for uh, smoother funnels when we move client from phase to phase in that customer journey. What can be automated? How do we get more personalized? And so sort of I'm now speaking more tech than I probably thought I would, you know, five years ago uh, and, and understanding what our platform strategy is, what our data strategy is, what use cases does marketing need to influence some of those outcomes and how do we build the business case to do so? Because, you know, often in, in a traditional wealth business or traditional financial services that has a B2B orientation, you're focused on what does the advisor need to be successful? And the world's changed. Like a lot of what I do today or my team does today is to enable the advisor in their journeys, but also we're actively communicating directly to customers. And the infrastructure just isn't there yet. Yeah, that's well said. And, and, uh, and so many categories, frankly, are wrestling with that exact challenge. And so, uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of rich learning out there. What are you happy about in your first six months? And what, are you, what do you wish had gone better? So like I mentioned, uh, we've, we've been at this for a little over a year. So it's a, li a little longer than six months. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think the, the thing, I'm, there's a couple of things. I, I, I feel really, really good about the team we have. Uh, we've got some incredibly strong leaders. It's a very diverse team. It's a mix of experience and expertise and what they bring to the table. And that's made us better every single day. Um, I feel really good about where we've landed with the brand. It wasn't easy, but we're starting to see some green shoots that I feel good about. Uh, lots more work to be done, but, but certainly I'll take the green shoots in terms of how uh, certain customer segments are reacting to the messaging. And every day we learn a little bit more. The, the, the campaign's only been in market for about a month now. But we're doing a, a certain level of lab testing with our creative as well, now that we have finished creative to see how that's working. And so that's where the green shoots come from. Uh, and we're starting to see some of our performance marketing actually take shape. In our self-directed business, we're driving you know, 20 plus percent uh, of production purely from marketing programs. Uh, we're measuring it obsessively. We're trying and testing new things. We're introducing new capabilities like Prosado and Movable Inc. that helps us mm -hmm. accelerate uh, some of our work. And I think lastly, we're starting to at least define what our technology and digital architecture needs to look like. We're not, we're not anywhere close to having what we need to better serve our clients, but we're starting to define that and put that on paper, which is also great progress. I want to shift now to the creative brief where we end every interview with some insights about, about you. And, uh, and the first one is, what's the biggest misconception about wealth management? That's for the rich. It, it just is, right? Even though, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to customers about even the word wealth. And is wealth the right word? Yeah, yeah, probably isn't. It, it, you know, here's, here's what's ironic about that is that's exactly where I started, that it probably isn't. 
Um, and we debated whether we wanted to call the business wealth management because of the word wealth and does that feel exclusionary in some way. Uh, our entire campaign is built around this idea of there's no one definition of wealth, but it brings wealth to the center, which I was uncomfortable about. But ironically, when you sort of go into testing, people understand what it means. What they don't want to see is a single definition of wealth. But the word wealth means a lot more than how much money you have. The word wealth means confidence, or freedom, or the ability to do what you love. And as long as you can dimensionalize wealth in those stories and represent every type of wealth story versus, you know, the, the retirement couple sitting on a beach or on a yacht, sort of what the industry has done and avoid some of those tropes. Uh, wealth feels true to the language people use. More than money, actually, because we debated that too. Is, mm -hmm. is, is money a better representation of it? How do you signify what you're worth financially and, and how what you're worth enables the goals you've set for yourself? So a lot, a lot of good learnings along the way. It's a good word if it's put in the right context. Bingo. What's the most common misperception about you? Um, that I am not assertive about what I believe. Right, because I'm I, I tend to be a very easy person to work with. I'm sort of low key, no drama. Um, but I think that sometimes gets taken for granted, and I think. Um, what I've learned about myself, by the way, because I'd convinced myself that was my story. I'm sort of, but I think what I've realized about myself is, and and I think as have others, is is I, I'm a high conviction person, and so when I feel strongly about something, I I'm I'm definitely one to share it, um, and that comes up a lot, sort of in the job I have, in the role I have in this wealth business, is to represent the customer. Right, I'm often the person in the room saying, sort of time out, we've we've missed the voice of the customer in this discussion. And I think that is unexpected for a few people who, you know, who either don't know me well or haven't known me well enough to to be a very vocal advocate uh for the customer in, in the discussion. Yeah, I like I like where that answer went. I, I find two of the biggest issues is we don't have the customer enough in conversations in companies. I find myself, you know, getting at that a lot. And also we don't connect marketing directly to the business goals and strategies and measures. That has to be a hard link. And again, it's a simple one. And I loved how you started your conversation about how, you, how you're thinking about marketing in your unit. It's very, very much what's a business ambition? What are we trying to do? And what's marketing's role in that? It's, again, a simple point, but not done as often as it needs to be done. You're right. And, and honestly, it's one of the reasons um, I've stayed at J.P. Morgan Chase. It's because it's one of the few places where it's just part of our DNA. And um, now with Kristen as a leader, I mean, she, that's how she thinks. And so for marketing to be a driver of growth is, is not... Is not a nice to have. It's the expectation, and that, that's what you know gets me excited about the, the work I do. I I love the creative process. Don't get me wrong, love it. But without the ability to have impact, um, that creative process would be somewhat futile. Yeah, absolutely. What's the marketing campaign in your career that's most memorable for you? One of the one of the campaigns that I'm incredibly proud of is uh, work I did in the college savings business. It was uh, just before uh, the 2008-2009 crash. And we were building a program called Keeping College Within Reach to try and build more advocacy around saving for college and bring more visibility around the need to start early, even if it's in a small way. And that, that sort of stays close to my heart a little bit because, again, it was very purpose-driven. Um, we knew it had the opportunity to have impact. And while it was slightly mistimed, 
Um, it, it, it truly was something we sort of started from scratch. It was an idea that came to life and became an advocacy platform that I, I feel incredibly proud of. Who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? You should bring Kristen back. It'll be, you, know, you know, it, it's interesting to watch her evolution from CMO to CEO. And it'll be great to have her reflections and how she sort of looks back on the things um, she was driving as a CMO and, and whether she'd do it differently now. I just interviewed Ann Mukherjee, who went from CMO oh, yeah. to CEO. That's right. I, I interviewed her for, for I, I run a program at the Cannes Lions Festival for CMOs, and we're mm -hmm. doing it virtual this year. So I'm interviewing a lot of people in advance for that. And I just interviewed Ann on the transition from CMO to CEO. And it was a fabulous discussion. And we'll be sharing that with the students in the program at Cannes. But it's a, it's a good topic. There, there aren't as many CMOs as there should be jumping into the CEO role. So those that do, I think there's a lot of learning there. That's so that's fair. a great idea. That's a, I, I think she'll come back. We'll work on her oh, together. Oh, she will. She will, for sure. Any day. Dipti, last word to you. Anything for me before we sign off from this wonderful discussion? No, I, I mean, no, this, is, this has been fantastic. So thank you. Um, any, any, any guidance for me? You know, like I was telling you, we're in sort of early in this journey of, of trying to reframe an iconic brand for what it represents to what it could be broadly in service of our business. Um, any words of wisdom? I think what you've done a remarkable job with is humanizing the company. And I think I would just continue, continue on that, you know, continue pushing that. I feel like there's human beings behind the brand. I feel like you care. I feel like you're doing the right thing. I feel like you're a positive force for change. And I would take all that beautiful equity, and I hope you're seeing that in your data, and ensuring you roll that right into this unit and leverage that and keep pushing at uh, relevance, differentiation, and meaning, purpose. You know, I think if that can become a competitive advantage for uh, this, this part of the J.P. Morgan Chase Company, you're going to have a great future, and you're going to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. Thank you. Well said. Dipti, thanks for your generosity today. It was a wonderful discussion. I hope to see you in person one of these days, right? It's coming. I, I sure hope so. This was, this was great. Thank you, Jim. It was just such an honor to be part of, uh, part of this forum. And it's been a great dialogue. Greatly appreciate it. That was my conversation with Dipti Kashru. Three takeaways from this one to apply in your business and life. First one is the importance of your first job in your learning and development. Dipti took a job in a startup in India that was helping global brands come into the Indian market. It was a fantastic experience for her. She learned a tremendous amount that she still carries forward to today. You just can't overstate the power of learning in your early jobs after your education. The second takeaway is the importance of getting everyone together on what the brand stands for, and that includes deep insights about your customer. One of the first things Dipti did in her new job as CMO of this unit was to ensure everyone understood what kind of brand were they trying to build and what kind of values were behind that brand. Third takeaway, this was a lesson in how you find your voice as a company and brand on the many social issues that are opportunities for companies and society today. J.P. Morgan Chase has done a great job at this because they've humanized the brand and they pick issues where their business can help make a positive difference in. And they've chosen issues that are close to their business and where the company can make a difference for the customers and the society it serves. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.